I heard the news recently that the Sangharaja Somdetnyana Sangra, his uh, funeral will be in December. Just made me think back because uh, I think he was the second Buddhist monk that I met when I went to Thailand the first time as a lay person. First one was an Australian monk who was teaching meditation at Wat Pawan. And I was attending his classes and just uh, out of good fortune, one day walking between the place where the building we did the sitting meditation and the brand new Pali school, which is another tall building, I think it's about six stories, uh, with air conditioning where we did the walking meditation. It's a very nice place to do it. We'd go past Somdetnyana Samwara's kuti every time. And in those days he was not yet the Sangharaja. He was still Somdet, an abbot of Wat Pawan. And a lot younger, in his 60s, I think, the late 60s. And he was always a very kind presence in the monastery. If you saw him, he was always very composed, peaceful presence walking around. And he'd smile. And there was one occasion, me and my friend were walking along and he actually stopped and talked to us briefly, which was a surprise, a very nice surprise because we already worked out, looking at the size of his kuti, he must be somebody very important, very grand kuti, and realized he was the abbot, and he had the bearing of a great master, his composed, peaceful. And uh, so when he stopped and just briefly gave us encouragement to practice, I think he knew we were in this meditation class. And uh, who knows, potentially going to become monks. He uh, gave us a few words of encouragement. He could actually speak a few words of English as well. Which uh, brightened up our day. And that was, as I said, that was the second monk I met in Thailand. A very um, good introduction, because although he was a senior administrative monk and a great scholar, he was also known for his meditation skills as well, and he always promoted that. And he knew foreigners mainly had come to Buddhism because of their interest in meditation. And he was very supportive of the foreigners, foreign monks, foreign lay people. also got me interested in finding out a bit more about the Pali language because his name was quite interesting, Jnana Sangwara. I started um, finding out what it meant asking and reading 
Samwara means restraint or composure. Jnana means knowledge, wisdom. That's the, the restraint that comes through wisdom. Which led on to reading about the different kinds of restraint. The Buddha talked about sila, sangwara. There's a monk, we keep the patimokkha, follow the patimokkha. Leads to a restraint of the kilesas in our speech, our actions, our lifestyle. Or sati, sangwara, the restraint that comes through the practice of mindfulness. Particularly indriya, sangwara is the same as sati, sangwara really. Maintaining composure and restraint as we experience sense contact, we establish mindfulness and don't let our senses indulge or dwell on, or let our mind dwell on different sense objects that stir up kilesa and condition the mind in a negative way. We use mindfulness to cut off. So we learn, say, not to stare at things that bring up lust or greed, or stare at things that bring up anger. Same with smell, taste, touch, and so on. Another one, Kanti Sangwara, is uh, the practice of restraint through patience. Something Ajahn Chah emphasized over and over again in the practice of being patient with kilesas, being patient with situations, being patient with dukkha. And what is dukkha? Well, part of dukkha is not getting what you want and getting what you don't want. But learning to be restrained and composed as you experience that with patience, resilience. Then there's Jnana Sangwara, which uh, was actually the first one I learned because of his name. The restraint that comes through wisdom. You might say seeing the value, knowing the value of restraint through understanding, through wise reflection, naturally leads on to restraint because you know it's in your own good interest. Again, it's something that Somdetnyan himself, or Ajahn Chah, all the teachers, emphasize over and over again, is the value of contemplation from day one when you practice, as a way to bring out understanding, the right attitude, right view as to why we practice, what the purpose is, and how to do it, the benefits of it, the dangers of not practicing restraint, say, the benefits of practicing restraint, learning to wisely contemplate, use that wisdom and understanding to help increase your ability to restrain kilesa. They used to say, um, it's like uh, wisdom, as Yen Chai always used to say, you know, we practice sila, learn the pre to keep the precepts, 
develop samadhi and then develop wisdom. But actually you need wisdom first as well. So it's a kind of circle. You need wisdom to keep precepts. You need to see the value of it. Buddhism isn't a teaching based on uh, compulsion. There's no compulsory sila keeping of precepts. And there's no one forces us to do it. It has to come through our own understanding of the value and that motivates us to keep the precepts. And they say like, it's like washing hands. You need your left hand to wash your right hand, your right hand to wash your left hand. Sila needs wisdom, wisdom needs sila. We need to compose the mind through the practice of sila so that we can develop the calm through meditation that allows us the insight to really see the true nature of phenomena. But we also need wisdom to see the value of keeping the precepts in the first place. So they support each other, they're inseparable. Part of that practice, Ajahn Chah always used to emphasize the importance of little things, details, let's say sakya waters for the monks, or even for the novices. Um, eight precepts for Anagarikas and the various core water monastic practices to take everything as important, not to develop a kind of a careless or casual attitude where you say, oh, this doesn't matter, it's only a minor rule or a minor practice. It's just somebody else's interpretation. He used to say, oh, no, don't do that because it can become a, a habit that if it stays with you over many years, well, it can lead on to bigger problems. So he used to give the example of, say, one thing leads to another. Little things lead to bigger things. And maybe, say, you're careless with talking to, um, say, as a bhikkhu, maybe talking to women too much. They're following the Buddha's advice to Ananda, best not to see them you have to see them, don't talk to them. If you have to talk to them, we'll just keep it brief. And Chai used to say, well, if you talk, keep talking to someone more and more, get familiar, get to know them, well then the, that sense impression sticks in your mind. And maybe talking comes on to actually wanting or thinking of them, becoming attracted to them and so on, maybe forming a relationship and so on. One thing leads to another, maybe even leads to be breaking some of the more serious precepts later on. Or one thing leads to another, say like killing. Say when you come into the monastery, the first thing you learn, say in Thailand, is you, you have to restrain yourself from the intention, the wish to squash mosquitoes. They're always biting you. You might think that's a fairly small thing, not killing a mosquito. And Jen Chai used to say, but somebody who can kill a mosquito, they give in to that desire. Well then, the next thing they can do is kill a, a mouse or a lizard. And the next thing they can do is they can kill a cat or a dog. The next thing they can do is kill a cow or a horse. 
next thing they can do is they kill a, can kill a human. Someone who can kill a human can even kill their own parents. It's a big jump from mosquito to killing a human. But what he was pointing out is the, the process by which chelases, which are a little bit like kind of a, a virus, and they can multiply and grow, intensify, strengthen over time if they're unaddressed. And little things become bigger things. Small negative intentions can become bigger, more with more consequences. So the emphasis in the monastic life is very much on learning, restraint, behavior, composure, which is obviously directly out of fashion with the rest of the world. The rest of the world emphasizes freedom. Often that's associated with the unrestrained behavior. In a monastery, we're using wisdom, jnana samwara, to see the value of restraint in training body, speech and mind, and particularly training the mind. Learning to restrain our outward expression of the kilesis so that we can become more aware of the roots of the kilesis. So as we practice restraint, composure in the sila and in our day-to-day -day activities and lifestyle, the mindfulness we generate, the patience, the wisdom that we're generating, all are providing these supportive conditions for meditation. As we get more used to keeping the precepts, following the patimoka, more used to being mindful in daily life, more used to reflecting on our precepts and wisely reflecting, say, on the use of requisites and so on, then little by little you can see the value as your mind becomes calmer, more peaceful, then it's easier to deal with the inner causes of suffering and unhappiness. We, those we call the kilesa, even kilesa is another thing I learned very quickly, is learning Pali and reading suttas and reading Dhamma hearing Dhamma talks, you know, there's so many words for kilesa. Sometimes they're anusaya, so latent tendencies, underlying tendencies. Sometimes they're asawa. Sometimes even asawa they translate in different ways, like fermentations, or outflows, or intoxicants of the mind. Sometimes kilesas are fetters, sangyojana, sometimes they're floods, ochre, and so on, many different ways describing kalesa. When we come to practice meditation, probably the most common word we use is niwarana, pancha niwarana, five hindrances. They might, you might say they're the sort of daily experience of kilesa. We talk about them as the five hindrances, the five robbers, because they rob us of our peace of mind and they rob us of our wisdom. Every time hindrances take over the mind, they're weakening our wisdom. They, so they're hindrances, they block us from following the path, doing more good, 
whether it's on the level of dana, sila, meditation, or insight. They're hindrances, they're blocks. So much of our practice is about being very patient and working with the hindrances, we say. Developing the mindfulness and then the ability to wisely reflect, recognize a hindrance as a hindrance and work out ways to overcome them. Particularly bringing up effort over and over again, and redoubling and returning to developing right effort to deal with the hindrances every day. What is right effort? Well, in short, the effort to bring up mindfulness. Because when mindfulness is established, then the hindrances subside. And at least temporarily, we free our mind from those obstacles. We all know what they are, sense, sense desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness, worry, and doubt. And when we bring up mindfulness, then the hindrances drop away. Sometimes very quickly, if mindfulness is strong, sometimes it takes more effort. Obviously, mindfulness is supported by wisdom. Mindfulness, clear comprehension and wisdom. And Jen Cha used to say they're like three friends working on a building site and they have to lift, say, some heavy object. You need all three together. And the heavy object is the hindrance that you're lifting up and throwing out of your mind, as it were. They keep having to bring up right effort to re-establish mindfulness. Even that takes wisdom. The effort to prevent hindrances and kilesas arising. So actually, you might say, alert enough, on the ball enough, to see where hindrances might arise in our daily life. Obviously, different situations through habit and practice, we get to know where hindrances come up, say, around sensual objects, or maybe around food, or lay people, around possessions, and so on. Or just mentally, when we're saying, particularly when we're on our own, often people have a lot of sensuality when they're lying down. So just posture can be enough of a, a warning that hindrances might come up, say the hindrance of sensuality. In Thailand, they say, if you do a lot of lying on your back unmindfully, that's the posture of a, a yucca. <laughs> and you have very strong lust come up, very strong sensual desire in different ways, just because of the posture. That's why we recommended to sleep in the lion posture, lie on our side with our arm folded, because it's a more mindful posture. And as you're falling asleep, it's harder for sensuality to overcome the mind. It's just one example. Well, obviously food, drinks, all these things, as the more we become aware of how hindrances come up, and say the hindrance of sensual desire, well then, right effort of preventing a hindrance arising means you're already on your guard before you come into contact with those sense objects or before you go lie down to go to sleep, you're already 
training yourself, reminding yourself how to do it wisely, carefully, mindfully. Or ill will, same. Mm. You get to know ahead what stirs up ill will. Maybe it's a person that you've got to dislike. You live in a monastery, there's many different characters, and so maybe somebody, their personality doesn't fit with you or your ideals, so start to get irritated with them. So every time you see them, hear them, think about them, irritation arises. So maybe right effort is actually to prevent that happening. You start to be more aware of how the presence of someone or interaction with someone stimulates ill will, negativity. Maybe ahead of time you're already spreading metta or reminding yourself to be more on your guard, more careful around this person so that you avoid ill will arising. Or if you're on your own not to dwell on objects that bring up in will, ill will, not to indulge in ill will. So if you keep thinking of something or somebody that brings up ill will, well, train yourself to turn away from that object. Again, with mindfulness, but also wisdom, just seeing where, where the kilesa arises, where the hindrance arises and how. And you start putting into action preventative measures. You know, no different than what we do with our bodies for disease. You know, we do exercises to help keep the body fit. We choose our diet and how much we eat to keep the body healthy. We take some medicine sometimes to prevent disease. With our mind it's the same. First right effort is to prevent unwholesome dhammas arising. That isn't to say we go the other extreme, we become kind of paranoid and say, oh, I can't go there because I get angry, or I can't go there because sensual desire arises. And sometimes that is the correct thing, just to avoid a situation or a place, a person. But in life you can't always do that. So it's also more subtle. It's about developing the mindfulness and wisdom around that kilesa, that hindrance. How does it arise? and being aware of the danger ahead of time so you can really watch and look after your mind as different situations come up. Because life is unpredictable. We can't control everything. Inevitably, sooner or later, causes and conditions will come together that stimulate the arising of a different hindrance. You have to be on your guard, ready, and you have a few techniques and you prepare yourself what to do, how to manage that situation wisely. That's right effort. Obviously, if the Kalesa, the Nibbana has arisen, well, you have more techniques what to do once it has arisen. Again, you rely on your sila, your sangwara, restraint. So maybe Kalesas are arising inside, but on the outside you learn not to display them, not to follow them as the uh, suttas teach us, as Ajahn Chah used to teach us, neither delighting in nor having aversion for whatever the sense object or the experience we're involved with, learning to maintain equanimity with mindfulness, basic sense restraint, composure, 
even if inside we're still reacting with aversion and lust or greed or different negative emotions, worry, fear and so on, externally not giving in, not following, not indulging. So again that takes mindfulness, takes patience and takes wisdom, wise reflection. Keep watching over and observing the mind, recognizing chilesas arising in a different in different situations through our day. Obviously we hone or fine tune that skill when we do sitting and walking meditation. We can become much sharper in our mindfulness practice and in, in watching and recognizing Kalesa. But part of our life is not when we're sitting, not when we're walking. It's when we're doing other activities. Standing, sitting, walking, lying down. So we have to be able to bring up the same qualities that we're developing in our formal meditation in all situations. Interacting with other people eating, bathing, working, going back to our kuti, falling asleep, waking up. Every situation we're learning to develop this vigilance, this ability to watch over the mind, to prevent kilesa and hindrances arising, or if they have arisen, well, to quickly recognize them for what they are so that we can start letting them go, abandoning them. And maintaining the wholesome states of mind that have arisen. Or if they haven't arisen, well, the effort to bring them up. Over and over again, Ajahn Chah used to emphasize the way it is with meditation. We put all this effort into bringing up mindfulness, restraint, wisely reflecting, get the mind to the point where it does start to let go of the hindrances. We start to experience some peace, some freedom for a while, and it's it's good. We get joy, we get pity and sukha. But he said the hardest thing of all is maintaining that, looking after it. As soon as the pity and sukha arises already it starts to fade. Already we let the mind slip back into distraction. Already the hindrances start to slip back in and we lose our calm composure, lose our mindfulness. Often that's very frustrating for the practitioner over and over again to have developed some calm, maybe even some insight, when then it all disintegrates and disappears again. So again, this is the practice of the four right efforts. As you finish your sitting meditation and you walk away, go away, well, how well can you look after that state of mind? Hopefully there's some wholesome dhammas have arisen, so how well can you maintain them? As you come out and face face the world, you know, through our senses, we face the world through our senses. So as you face sight, sound, taste, smell, touch, food, drink, people, going here, going there, doing work and so on. How well do you maintain your mindfulness? The four right efforts are constantly supporting the development of mindfulness 
and mindfulness supports the four right efforts. Yeah. Again, like wisdom and sila, effort and mindfulness support each other, reinforce each other. Another problem is we, we put all this effort into developing mindfulness and then samadhi and I think all of us have probably experienced times where the hindrances got quiet. We actually have some temporary liberation from the hindrances. What they talk about, tadanga vimuti, temporary liberation of mind. And we feel good, peaceful, there's no obvious sense desire or anger. We're not sleepy, we're not restless and agitated and we're not doubting. But then gradually we become aware that underlying this, there's still kalesa there. And the hindrances have all gone. We're contemplating maybe having some clear insight into the Dhamma or experiencing just the peace of samadhi. And then everything starts to flow back again. And often that's a, you know, it's quite a challenge dealing with that fact that underlying the mind is still the causes and conditions for kilesa. It's still the fetters, the things, the qualities actually bind us to the world. As we know the word for Nibbana, they often translate as the unbinding of the mind, liberation, unbinding. What, what's it unbound from? It's unbound from these fetters, the ten fetters, particularly you know, the first three, sang, Sangyojana, Sakaya Diti, Wichikicha, Silapata Baramasa. You get rid of the hindrances, you experience some nice peace, clarity, the Dhamma seems to make sense. Because we've still got Sakaya Ditti, well, the sense of self forms around that. So this is my peace, my happiness, my insight. Maybe further along you realize that and it's like, oh, put all this effort into meditating, bringing up effort, bringing up mindfulness, working to compose myself, restrain myself and then get to the, develop some samadhi. And then all the mind does is go and take that as self take ownership of that experience because of this fetter, Sakaya Ditti. On the most subtlest level it's the conceit. If we read the sutras we know even Yanagami still has conceit. It's probably not the same conceit as us but still conceit. But it doesn't really matter, Sakaya Ditti is good enough to deal with for that, deal with that first. Sakaya Ditti takes over takes these candors as self, candors are a self or they're in a self, or the self is in the candors or the same self, we own these candors. And you experience peace of mind, the hindrances have gone, well that's still within the candors, still sankara kanda, sati is a sankara, samati, sankara, kilesa and the opposite of kilesa, they still fall within the candors. There's still this sense of self form around our experience, the view of self, this is me, this is mine. So it can be quite discouraging, You've done all that work and then still the sense of self is there to take over. But maybe you can infer from what you're doing as you practice, you say, well, just as I've 
abandoned these niwarana, the hindrances, which are a form of kilesa, well, still I can keep practicing and abandon this more subtle sense of self, sense of self-view, conceit that forms even around the good that I do. It can be on any level, you know, level of dana, just comparing, I've done more service, more dana for the religion, for the monastery or whatever, than someone else, I've done less. Or precepts, I keep the precepts, I keep the vinaya better than them, or worse than them, or the same as them. Samadhi, or I have samadhi, or they don't, or they have samadhi, I don't. On and on it goes, but we can stick, we can infer, we can see, if we keep letting go of the hindrances and then keep up this reflection on developing our insight, using the three characteristics, anicca, dukkha, anatana. Well, little by little, you're going to scrape down and get to these fetters. It only stands to reason if you keep doing it, you don't give up. Little by little, you will start to expose the fetters, the roots of our, real root causes of our suffering and our attachment. So you have to bring up that kind of reflection if you're feeling discouraged, meditating, you get peace, then you lose your peace, up and down. Try and see the big picture. You're still, overall, you're gradually gaining experience, gaining wisdom and understanding that you, helps you to scrape down a little bit le deeper under the surface of the hindrances. And really, we have to keep coming back to this body, the physical body, the 32 parts, the four elements, the asupagamatanas. Because all the sakayaditi, as the name implies, it comes from this view of body as self. And with body we have the senses, so the sense contact that we have, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, all the basis for this sense of self, self-view to arise. Our thoughts take a self, our views we take a self. You keep coming back to the body over and over again. Keep being willing to look at it more deeply, however boring or repulsive, tiresome it is. And little by little, that's the sense of weariness with the kilesis will start to come up. We get weary of falling into lust, get weary of falling into anger and indulging in these states. The more coarser or the more extreme kilesis, little by little we lose interest in them because we see their suffering. You don't want all the, you know, the physical manifestations of kilesis, which you might say are the coarsest. As you contemplate the body, you become aware. You know, when you have extreme lust, there's a lot of Sukhavetana and seeking Sukhavetana, but then it doesn't last, fades away, and then we want more of it. There are all the different kinds of hormones and chemicals that come out, whether it's lust or anger. The kind of lust or anger that leads us to break the precepts. We start to weary of it, lose interest in it, because you can see very clearly it's suffering. It's not peaceful. It's not peaceful to get angry, it's not peaceful to fall into states of lust or strong sensual desire. 
So the more you contemplate the body, the coarser defilements the mind gets weary with. Not only the hindrances start to fade away, but also getting down to this sangyojanas, sakayaditi, the sense of self, the view of self. And you see the monastic form, the monastic lifestyle is geared to helping you there. And we all shave our heads, wear the same robes, we follow the same vinayas, we have the same teacher, follow the same practices and so on. It's not like the world, we're not competing with each other, rivaling each other, arguing with each other and so on. We learn to live in the best harmony that we can imagine, and that, we can, you know, that you can do in an imperfect world. And keep learning to set aside Sakaya Ditti, set aside the hindrances, set aside the different delusions and ways that the mind likes to promote its attachment to the candidates. So our strongest views, you know, the strongest views we hold lead us to, to argue. From arguing we go on to fighting. So people can kill each other over their views different views over race or religion, culture and so on. Or just strongest, coarsest attachment to power or possessions, authority, money, wealth. That sense of me, mine, Sakaya Ditti leads people to rival each other, compete, even harm each other, fight each other, kill each other. At least on that level we can start to see the suffering of Sakaya Ditti, start to erode it away, keeping the precepts, developing mindfulness, seeing the, the coarsest level of Kilesa and abandoning that. Underneath we might still be disappointed or depressed, or, but there's still all that conceit and the more subtle attachments, you know, even the sodapana still got anger and lust, still got attachment to, you know, they say fine material existence or immaterial existence based on the attachment to the jhanas and the bliss of the jhanas, still got conceit, restlessness and obviously avicca, ignorance still there. Sometimes we know too much and we feel depressed and we say, oh, I can't, I can't do it, it's just too much. But also look at what you have achieved, you know, to stay in the robes, keep the Vinaya, develop meditation, you've already achieved much. You've already proved to yourself you can let go of hindrances, you can let go of the course of defilements. You can challenge your Sakaya Ditti and let it go, even if it's not finally gone yet. As you do that, say, as you review the practice you've done, maybe also you know, some of the wholesome qualities arise, like gratitude to the teachers, to the Buddha, Dhamma Sangha, to the different teachers we've had, gratitude to the people who supported and helped us in our practice. Compassion arises, compassion for yourself, compassion for others, because you understand more how suffering comes about and we're all the same. As human beings, we have the same tendency to suffering. So compassion arises. And as you review your practice, you say, well, even though there's still more to do, I have achieved something. I have managed to let go of some Sakaya Ditti, 
or some of the causes for psychiatry. And obviously the other two of the first fetters are also eroded at the same time. If you can see the practice you've done, the benefit you've gained, or doubts, uncertainty about the practice and the value of it and what it is, what it is we have to do, will also be eroded. You know, more confidence in your own ability to practice and more confidence in the practice, in what the Buddha taught, in the Buddha's enlightenment, the enlightenment of the Sangha, the Arya Sangha. So doubts drop away little by little. The Sila Patabharamasa also drops away. It's based on, you might say, wrong views, attaching to different practices, just believing this will get me somewhere, get me results. Wrong beliefs, wrong views, fumbling around, not quite sure why you do something or, or thinking you do this and for sure you'll get to Nibbana. But just approaching it in the not quite the right way with enough mindfulness and wisdom. But as you practice and review your practice, you see, I don't do that quite so much as before. Not so much fumbling around, not so much doubt, and not so much strong or coarse psychiatry. Hopefully that gives you some motivation, some happiness to keep practicing. You can see it can be done. All of us can do it. As Ajahn Chah used to say, you just keep practicing little by little, the, the water jar gets full. You keep bringing up mindfulness, putting effort into it. You keep reflecting on the Dhamma, keep reflecting on Anicca Dukkha Anatta, seeing the, the, all phenomena, physical and mental, body and mind, are subject to Anicca Dukkha Anatta. Little by little our insight deepens. Little by little the jar fills up. Even if you've only got a little puddle of water at the bottom of your jar, if you don't stop practicing, we can be sure it's going to get fuller and fuller over time. So in the end, when we do have doubts about the practice, even though we ask and we read and we study, probably ultimately the best thing to do is just keep practicing. Keep bringing out mindfulness, keep reflecting on the Dhamma internally, not just remembering the Dhamma, but actually seeing and looking at your own experience. Little by little the doubts will fade. We'll put them to rest through the practice. So tonight is uh, one prat, a holy, holy day, holy night. Uh, usual program, carry on practicing, meditating, sitting, walking, and at 11.30 we'll have some Purita chanting.